Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, grew up the oldest of eight children in a small segregated town outside of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. They were poor, her father was not literate, yet despite these circumstances, she became one of America's top diplomats, having just left her post a few weeks ago as the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. Ambassador Thomas Greenfield speaks candidly about the kinds of racial animus she faced growing up and at college at Louisiana State University. She tells how she first became interested in Africa and how her career as an Africa specialist evolved, including a formative stint as a diplomat in the small country of the Gambia, and also as the U.S. ambassador to Liberia, where she conducted what she called gumbo diplomacy with the Nobel Peace Prize winning president of Liberia. Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. We kick off talking about U.S. Africa policy and why it's a little more bipartisan than other parts of U.S. foreign policy. It's a great conversation. Before we dive in, though, I wanted to tell you a couple of quick things. First, for you premium members, I have released two new bonus episodes. The first is a 15-minute explainer on the Syria civil war. My interlocutor and I try to break down the origins, the big moments that have shaped this profoundly consequential global catastrophe. I also recorded about a 20-minute conversation with a North Korea expert who walks me through the Kim family. That is Kim Il-sung, the grandfather, Kim Jong-il, the father, and the current leader, Kim Jong-un, who they are, what their backgrounds are, how the women in the Kim family played a profoundly important role behind the scenes in North Korean politics, family rivalries, really interesting stuff, and frankly, very important to know if you want to know where we are going on North Korea. It was a good conversation, fascinating stuff I really did not know or have a good handle on before. I think you will love it. You can listen to those two episodes plus three other bonus episodes that I've already recorded if you become a premium subscriber. And you can do that by following the link in the description field of this podcast episode or going to globaldispatchespodcast.com and clicking on the support the show link. And I'm asking for recurring monthly subscriptions from my premium members to access these bonus episodes and other rewards, including complimentary subscription to my Don's Digest Global News Clip Service. That's a email news clips service I put together every morning that covers the top global humanitarian news and other rewards as well. You can find them all on the uh, support the show link on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Thank you for supporting the show. And if you're considering whether or not to become a contributor, to become a premium subscriber to the show, well, hopefully these new episodes and the other bonus episodes that I have put out are our incentive. That's the idea, at least. And now here is Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? 
Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. When I took this job, when I was offered the job in June of uh, 2013, it was a few weeks before the president took uh, his uh, trip to Africa. And on that trip, uh, he announced that he would be hosting the first ever African Leaders Summit. And so I came into the job in August of 2013 with uh, a huge uh, challenge, and that was to uh, help pull together a team that would deliver on the president's commitment to host an African Leaders Summit, inviting all of the leaders from across the continent, including North Africa, to Washington uh, for a two- to three-day engagement with the President of the United States, and we were able to do that in August of 2014. And it was, in my estimation, and I think I've seen in others' estimation as well, an extraordinary success. The President uh, was heavily engaged with uh, with the leaders in an all-day uh, session. We had a business forum uh, the, uh, the day before in which we brought businesses from across Africa companies from the U.S. and leaders together in one room to look at opportunities for business on the continent. And when I talk to African leaders, they are still glowing. Oh. It's, been, uh, it's been three years, and that summit still has, uh, has resonance on, on the continent of Africa. And one of the questions that I was asked very, very quickly with the new administration was, will the new administration host another leader summit? And we just and don't know that. That's to, to be decided. We don't know that yet. It's to be decided. Uh, it would be my strong recommendation to the new assistant secretary that uh, he or she proposed that the president host the leader summit. We got quite, uh, I think, a lot of mileage from that uh, from that summit. And and it's uh, you know it's fair to say that there is no assistant secretary of of state for African affairs, just as there is no assist, many other assistant secretary of states. But none of the regional yeah, have not have been appointed. Yeah. So so let me ask you a question. So so your um your description of of how these African officials are kind of like glowing uh, at this opportunity uh, kind of reminds me of this really interesting moment experience exchange I had um, with the chairperson of the African commission, uh, Jean Ping, uh, probably like two weeks. The previous one. The yeah. previous one. Yeah. So this yeah. was about two weeks after the, the Obama first, the, the 08 election. So it was like November of, of 2008. And I was at a uh, conference in, in Addis and I just sort of caught myself talking to, to Jean Ping and, and he's, and I was kind of asking him, you know, his impressions on, on Obama. Cause you know, Obama fever was like everywhere, you know, every cab mm-hmm. driver had an Obama hat. People were, were ecstatic, uh, that someone with African roots could be president of the United States. And he said something to me that, that kind of remains with me to this day. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, the African region or the African union has like five regions. The sixth region is the diaspora. We consider president Obama, the president of the diaspora. And, uh, and, and I'm wondering if you ever sort of in your experience working in the Obama administration 
ever sort of personally saw how President Obama was able to use that leverage, use the sort of the, the, the fact of his African roots to advance discrete policy on the African continent? I don't think, uh, at least in my view, that the president purposely or consciously used his African roots to advance policy. But I think that Africans and others who were involved on uh, Africa policy saw it as a positive benefit and uh, and used it as a benefit. But I don't think the president himself uh, made any efforts to uh, to use his his background as as any kind of leverage. Well, was that like almost a missed opportunity then? I mean, it's just like such a I mean, it's unique in, in obviously American history, but also like you know world history. Well, I, I I think the opportunity was not lost. The opportunity was there, and people were aware of it. I, I think the president had a, a very uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, difficult balance to make sure that we all understood, and Africans as well, that he was the president of the United States. He was not president of the diaspora. He was representing uh, the most powerful nation in in the world. And so uh, having uh, someone of African descent in that position uh, was certainly a plus, but it certainly couldn't be what the president used in terms of, uh, of his leverage with the continent. His leverage was that he was president of the United States. Yeah, that, no, no, that, that I, I, that's obviously, you know, the, the, the most important leverage, uh, there is, but, you know, I'm, I'm also reminded, I think, did he make, uh, in, in advance of the, the Kenyan elections, made some announcement to try to appeal to, to Kam, cause, you know, he still is obviously very popular in, in Kenya. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, and he, mm-hmm. and he did, but I think any president would have done that as well. Uh, I think, uh, I, I, I think as a country, we were concerned about, uh, what was happening in, in Kenya. And uh, so I think the president, uh, he may, I, and again, on the other side of this, his voice may have carried more weight because of his background. But I do also think that any American president would have done the same thing that he did. Um, and uh, what uh, I, so, so you mentioned earlier, the, the African uh, leaders summit, um, you know, there are some leaders that were included, some were, were excluded. And I have to imagine that there was like powerful incentive leading up to that summit to want to, that, that you used personally, probably to, to convince certain leaders to enact reforms or, or, or uh, enact certain policies in order to for them to secure that invitation. You know, we we were very consistent in uh, what we were saying to African leaders. Everyone was invited with whom we had uh, uh, good diplomatic relations. So there were only three leaders not invited uh, to the summit, and that was Eritrea, uh, South uh, sorry Sudan, not South Sudan, Sudan, uh, Bashir. And uh, and Mugabe from uh, from Zimbabwe because we had sanctions on uh, on on Zimbabwe, so everyone else was invited. We did see it as the invitation as leverage uh, because uh, all of the leaders wanted to be invited, and we had I think a unique opportunity to raise uh, some of the most sensitive issues with these leaders here in uh, in Washington. 
And uh, sort of uh, go at you know you mentioned earlier that um, you know the, the Africa policy is still sort of to be decided. A lot of personnel slots are are unfulfilled in in the Trump administration. But I guess based on your your years of experience, at least to me and and, and as, as an outside observer, there seems to be a degree of consistency uh, towards on African policy that is not really re- as replicable in, in other regions that, you know, U S interests tend to remain the same. And there isn't like a huge partisan, um, battle, you know, or, or, or debate when it comes to African setting policies and priorities for yeah. U S policy. Would, would you say that's probably fair? Uh, it's absolutely fair. In fact, when we started this conversation, I wrote a little note for myself to remind me to uh, uh, note the importance of bipartisan support for uh, for Africa, and it has always been bipartisan. If you look back uh, uh, to as far back as the Bush administration and through uh, the first Bush administration, through the uh, Clinton administration, the second Bush administration, uh, our policy uh, in Africa has been bipartisan. On the Hill, both sides have been uh, supporters of, of Africa. Uh, both sides have taken a uh, strong uh, issue with uh, with the challenges that uh, we face in Africa, whether it's uh, fighting uh, 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 terrorism, whether it's uh, dealing with the situation in South Sudan, dealing with famine, or some of the opportunities such as the uh, AGOA uh, initiative, which allows African goods to be imported into the United States duty-free, or the Young African Leaders Initiative that was supported by uh, by both sides. And and I mean, as you said earlier, it's it's one of those enduring kind of, frankly, one of the last remnants of of a bipartisan consensus that that exists seems to be on Africa. And as you mentioned, it seems to me that you know counterterrorism is is one top issue, trade is another top issue, and, and development and sort of disease fighting is is another kind of top issue. And all of those tend to have a degree of of bipartisan consensus when it comes to Africa. Absolutely. And I think that will continue uh, in the new administration as well. I, I don't see any any signs that that is, uh, is going to change. And I think it's one of uh, the things that gives uh, the Africans uh, or the advocates for Africans confidence that uh, we will continue to be engaged on the continent. So I'd love to switch gears and learn more about you and, and your background. Uh, so where, where are you from? Where are you born? I'm from Louisiana, a little town right outside of Baton Rouge called Baker. Baker. And when when were you born there? What year? I was born in 1952. So in, in, in uh, a rural town, a small rural town? Very small rural town, very segregated, uh, and uh, very much uh, uh, a uh, struggling, uh, working-class, poor community. What did your parents do? Uh, my father was a laborer and my mother was a cook. And I consider myself a cook. Um, I, if, if, if I did my career all over again, I'd probably be a famous Louisiana chef. What's, <laughs> do, do you have any favorite dishes? Or what was your um, favorite of your mom? What, did you have like a, a favorite dish that your mom made you that, that you would love to uh, eat? You'd funny. love to replicate? <laughs> It's, it's funny that you asked what my mom made because uh, she doesn't cook anymore, but uh, one of uh, the things that she used to make uh, was something called potato gravy, and it was a gravy made uh, uh, with uh, with white potatoes and onions, and she might put little pieces of bacon in it or something, and we would eat it over rice, and it was really extraordinary. And she asked once when I was coming home, what did I want her to make? And I said, 
make potato gravy. And she said, I don't do that anymore. I only made that when we were poor and we couldn't afford meat. And so she would make potato gravy. And I didn't know, you know, when you're young, you don't know that you're poor unless you're starving. And we, we weren't starving, but we'd eat potato gravy instead of uh, meat gravy. And um, and it's one of those things, and I, I never learned to make it. I have a brother who knows how to make it, and occasionally he'll make it for me when uh, when I'm home. But it's not something that we eat because now they can afford meat. That's that that that's that's so interesting. I mean, and and I mean, I I just like can imagine as as a child. I mean, how you said you weren't sort of aware of of your relative your your poverty, but. Um, like were there looking back uh, obviously that that's like a was was a big moment kind of knowing the the kind of food you ate was was kind of different or uh, from what yeah. you otherwise would have eaten but were there other instances or other memories that suggest to you that you know wow we we really did grow up in, in a different economic class than you're in now you know my my father for uh for uh years was not employed he uh i learned when i was in 12th grade that he was illiterate i didn't realize he was such a hard worker. I just it never even occurred to me he was illiterate. Uh, but um, uh, that certainly uh, held him back. He uh, never went beyond third grade because he was the oldest son in a in a rural family, and he had to help the family work on uh, work on the farm. And so um, when he first got his uh, his first full time job. Uh, he got it because there was a strike at the uh, at one of these chemical plants in Louisiana. I think it actually was U.S. Rubber, and uh, so the company uh, needed workers, and the uh, uh, black laborers uh, walked across the picket line, and uh, and that's how my father got his first job. And so even today, as uh, liberal as I might be, I'm very uh, supportive of people being allowed the right to work. Because had my father uh, uh, not been allowed to 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 work, uh, because he was not a member of the union, and the unions at that time were very um, uh, segregated, very racist, so he wasn't a member of a union. He couldn't get a job, and so the strike allowed him to cross the picket line. And uh, and of course, there were the challenges of anybody crossing a picket line in the, in those days. You you just didn't do it. But he uh, he did it, and then ended up uh, employed by uh, U.S. Rubber for the rest of his life. So you you were born before Brown versus Board of Education. You said, I think you said 1952. That was I believe 1955, yes. right? Yeah. So yeah. so did you did did your town? Because I know there are disparities in the actual implementation of the the Supreme Court oh, ruling. Yeah. So I um, went to a segregated school. I graduated from a segregated school. Uh, I went to LSU in 1970, and while it was not then no longer completely segregated, it was uh, a rare uh, uh, moment for uh, for a black person to go to Louisiana State University in 1970, and it was not a, an, ex- an enjoyable experience. I've sort of come to terms with uh, with that experience um, in my late adulthood, and in 2010, LSU. Uh, gave me the um, one of their uh, distinguished alumni uh, awards, and uh, at that speech, I uh, said to them that I felt that my experiences at LSU had really contributed to uh, who I'd become because I'd learned how to deal with adversity. And uh, that, well, what, that what, adversity- what were some of those experiences? I mean, what what what? 
I mean, just from looking again, like at, at at the history. I mean, so you were probably about twelve years old in nineteen sixty four, right? When when the Civil Rights yeah. Act yeah. was was passed. I mean, you must have at that point probably some profound memories of of that moment. You know, not at all, because you live in a little rural town. You're isolated from uh, the things that are happening. Uh, nothing changed uh, that I can recall uh, when uh, when I was 12 years old. Uh, the interesting thing that happened when I was 12 uh, uh, that brought me into kind of a little bit more of a, a of a, a national uh, world was the, the entry into our little town of uh, Peace Corps. Uh, Peace Corps came in 19, about 1964, 1963, 1964, uh, to this little town in Baker uh, to train Peace Corps volunteers who were going to Africa, and they brought with them African students who were teaching them um, teaching them the local languages. They were learning uh, Siswati and Somali. And so that was my first time ever meeting an African uh, but it was also the first time that I had experienced people challenging the segregation that we lived in uh, in this little town. So we have these white Peace Corps volunteers and their African uh, teachers who wanted to go to the local washeteria to wash their clothes. And it was a big, and I recall the sign very clearly on the corner for whites only. And um, they picketed in front of this place and got the sign removed so that uh, Peace Corps volunteers and and the Africans who were teaching them could go and use this facility. So you had and an African was, picketing uh, white racism you know, against African Americans. That's kind of that. That's, you know, that's it's funny. I I don't know that the Africans themselves participated, but the Peace Corps volunteers did. But why? I don't and, why would the Peace Corps volunteers come to Baker, Louisiana? That's interesting. I think back in the 60s, and I've talked to Peace Corps about this, they used to train in the United States um, instead of going to train in Africa. And in this little town, there was an old uh, historical black um, Baptist college that had closed down. And so the campus was still there with the dormitories and the office space. So Peace Corps uh, uh, and I, Louisiana was not the only place they did this. I think they did it in other places across the United States. They leased the property mm-hmm. for training of their volunteers before they went to Africa. And for me, it was interesting because one of those teachers, they invited the local kids from the community. This is a totally segregated uh, community. And they invited the local kids to come and learn uh, the language. And I went uh, and learned to say a few words in Saswati. And some 10 years later, I go to University of Wisconsin and the Saswati teacher uh, a woman by the name of Glory Mamba was a student, and she and I became students together. Uh, and, you know, at that point, I was, you know, 22, 23 years old. Uh, she may have been in her 30s, and uh, we became good friends. She just passed away about three years ago. Uh, well, that, that's, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. So yeah. um, growing up, so, so you mentioned you got into to LSU, which was rare for, for an African-American at, at the time. Um, also, I mean, I, your, your father, you said, was, was illiterate. Um, like, how, how did you, like, like develop intellectually as, as a young person? I mean, did your parents nonetheless, like, emphasize school? And, and education? You know, 
They did, and, and my mother was also, I mean, she wasn't illiterate. She, she dropped out of school when she was in eighth grade because she grew up in a town where the black school only went to eighth grade, so she never went to school after that until <clears throat> she got her GED from mm. the segregated school, that uh, the white school that I couldn't go to. Mm. So I, I gave the commencement address and announced that my mother got her high school diploma uh-huh. from that school in 1989. Uh-huh. Uh, but I had not been able to go. But they pushed their, their my, my, both my parents uh, pushed uh, their eight kids, I'm the oldest of eight, to, to uh-huh. work hard. Uh, it wasn't about intellectual. I, you know, I don't think either of them had the capacity to push us to be intellectually successful, but they pushed us to work hard. And you said uh, you're the oldest of eight. Mm-hmm. That's that's it. Was that like a heavy burden growing up? I mean, you're, were you like co-parenting? You know, I um, a little bit. You know, my you know back in those days, people would uh, you know a twelve year old could babysit. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I would back leave in, my when kids I was a kid, I was now. like a twelve year old baby. That wasn't too long ago, but yeah, no, I would not leave yeah. my kids with a twelve year old. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you know, if my parents had to go out somewhere, then I was uh, I was the babysitter. I was I was three years older than my next sister, uh, but my mother was not working when we were uh, uh, when we were little, and so uh, we kind of grew up and. And the community was also very much part of that. I grew up in the same community that my father grew up in. And so all of his brothers and sisters and his uh, mother, my grandmother, lived in that community. So, uh, and we, you know, my father, all of our neighbors were people my father grew up with. So we all knew each other. And uh, so it was a little bit of that, but, you know, I think in terms of my intellectual success, it was just going to uh, a school, uh, despite being segregated and not having all of the equipment and facilities of uh, the better white schools down the street, uh, we had great teachers. And, uh, and our teachers were very caring and they were very nurturing. And so I credit a lot of that to, to the teachers that I had. Um, so you referenced earlier, um, that, that your experience at LSU was, was a difficult one. Um, what, what made it difficult? What, what were some of the, the things that happened or things you witnessed that, that, um, sort of made you look back on those years with sort of mixed emotions? You know, you're you're in a place where you're not wanted, so that's the first. Like, uh, how did that uh, manifest itself? Or was it like just like a were, daily, what we call microaggressions now? Yeah, it, and I guess that's, you know, it's hard for me to pinpoint anything. I can tell you that uh, the famous KKK guy, David Duke, was there at the same time that I was there. Uh, and uh, uh, coming on campus to... Uh, to uh, make speeches uh, promoting uh, uh, racism and anti-Semitism. And we had something called a free speech alley every Tuesday. And he would stand there on the free free speech alley dressed in uh, a Nazi-like uniform and and give speeches. And and, uh, this is sort of accepted. Uh, on in our dormitories, I lived on campus, although it was only a few miles from 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 my house. Uh, we only I could only have a black roommate. So on every dormitory floor, uh, there were always uh, two black girls, uh, 
because we had to be roommates with each other. Uh, so I never had a, a nun, uh, a non-African-American roommate when I, when I was at LSU. Uh, there was no, for ex- the churches that were outside the campus were segregated. Uh, so we we couldn't attend those churches. So you just felt this sense of um, of not belonging. I mean, intellectually, were there opportunities um, that were cut off to you? Like, would would no one let you like study European history? Were you, were you sort of like channeled into like African history, or was that? No, like, I didn't mm-hmm. study Africa at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was no Africa there at that time. It's probably a good. Point. Uh, so yeah. I. Yeah. yeah, I was just a political science major. And so, so uh, and I mm-hmm. I had some good teachers uh who some of them who would come from northern schools. Uh the reason I ended up going to the University of Wisconsin for graduate school is because there was a a woman who was working on her PhD at the University of Wisconsin and she sort of took me under her her wrap and encouraged me to uh to consider graduate school at uh at Wisconsin. And and what graduate program did you pursue there? I did. Uh, I I went initially in a public uh, administration program for a one-year master's degree, and then that's where I became very interested in Africa. And then I started work on a PhD that uh, led me to doing research in Liberia uh, in the 70s. I what never was, finished writing a dissertation. Well, what was your research? That's fascinating. In Liberia in the 1970s. Um, yeah, I was. That was kind I of like the looking, boom boom time, right there. I mean, it was it was it was a, a relatively. It was the end. It was the end of the boom time. End of the boom time. It was coming. It was coming to an end because I went there in 78, uh, 79, and I left in seventy nine uh, when there were rice riots, and in nineteen eighty there was the coup. What was your experience? Uh, Can I ask you, just kind of looking back, landing in, yeah. in like, was that your first time in Africa? Was was landing in, in Liberia? It, it's funny. I still remember being on the Pan Am flight as we started coming on, on uh, over the coast of Africa and looking down and feeling very emotional about uh, coming to Africa for the first time. Uh, and, you know, I was ambassador to Liberia and every single time I would come on that coast, I would remember that first trip that I made in 19, uh, uh, actually in 1978. What, what were those like emotions? I mean, like what was kind of going through your, your head when you were kind of landing in, in Liberia for the first time? You know, you live in the United States as, as an African American and we have no, we, we know that we are of African descent. But there is, we we didn't. There's there was no connection to Africa. Uh, it's not like you have you're an immigrant and you have relatives that you stay in touch with. So African Americans, particularly, I, I would say in the 50s and 60s, we had that emotional attachment, but we didn't know what it meant. And so for me, going to Africa the first time, I I, I connected the dot in in a sense. Uh, between the the U.S. Uh, my American being an American and being an African. And what's interesting is is I, I would imagine that Liberians must have sort of the the mirror image of that. They kind of have like an emotional connection to the United States in in a way. Absolutely, I I'd never I've never voiced it that way, but that's exactly huh. uh, the way Liberians felt that they. They have that well. A segment of the Liberian population would have that connection to to America. And and, and it, can you just explain for people who are, who are not aware of Liberian history, like where that comes from? 
You know, and, and Liberia in 1822 was settled by um, African Americans who returned from the United States. Many of them had been freed. Some of them uh, were slaves who were freed under the condition that they returned to Africa. And so they arrived on, on the uh, coast of West Africa, then known as the Rice Coast, the Grain Coast, uh, and settled as uh, as Americans. They were facilitated by an organization called the American Colonization Society that was made up of philanthropists, uh, supremacists, supremacists who wanted to see Africans return back to Africa, uh, uh, um, uh, African Americans who were free, who wanted to reestablish uh, themselves back in Africa. So it was a papuri of, of people with different interests in this colonization society. And so they uh, arrived and, um, and settled in, in Africa. And you always hear that Liberia was never, uh, never colonized. Uh, I dispute that. Sure. I, I think that these were uh, colon, uh, colonizers who came and, and, uh, and settled um, in this country and brought in a different culture, uh, although the same race. Uh, a very different culture and a, pretty much a culture that emulated the experiences that many of them had had in the United States. And and it's you know fair to say that you still see like these the, like the both politically and and culturally like the trappings of that like you know the the language is is a, a version of of English basically. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the the flag is is almost like a knockoff of of the U.S. flag and and you know the with capital one of, star with one star yeah and, and the capital is is Monrovia named after the U.S. President James Monroe. And when you travel around Liberia, there are lots of names that are very familiar. You have Buchanan as one of the major cities. There is actually a settlement that's called Louisiana. Um, and just around the, the area, you, you can see this. And, and there are people who still know their history. They trace their uh, ancestors uh, on, the, uh, on the various ships that brought them back to Liberia and many of them still are connected with ancestors in the in the United States. Um so how did you get involved in diplomacy and, and become a, a diplomat? You had this, these intellectual passions, these, these interests in, in Liberia and in Africa, but how did how did you actually become and join the State Department? Well it's interesting because I really my intention was to be an academic. So that was why I was doing research and uh, and studying in Liberia, but when I was in Liberia, I began to meet people who worked at the embassy there, and one of those people was my husband. Uh, not for four years did he become my <laughs> husband, but uh, I met him in Liberia in 1978, and we got married in 1982. So that's that wedded uh, my interest in the State Department. Literally. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> It did, yeah. and uh, I uh, took the Foreign Service exam. I wasn't completely committed to doing the Foreign Service, but I thought, oh, this would be something interesting to do, and I didn't know that I was going to end up being married to someone there. And uh, so I went back to Madison, uh, Wisconsin, in 1979 and started writing my dissertation. Uh, I was then offered uh, a job at Bucknell University, and I uh, went off to Bucknell, but before I took the job at Bucknell, I got uh, notified that I had passed the um, uh, the oral exam of uh, of the State Department, 
and uh, I was offered a, uh, I was given an offer to join the Foreign Service in 1980, but I had already committed to teaching at Bucknell, so I turned the State Department down and went off and I taught at Bucknell for uh, a year and a half from 1980 to 1982 and came into the Foreign Service in January of 82. And what was your first posting? Jamaica. Okay. How did, how, how did they pick Jamaica for you? It's interesting. Uh, you know, when you're new in the service, uh, you don't get to pick your assignments. They are picked for you. And I knew I wanted to go to Africa, but my husband uh, was assigned to Washington, and I knew I had to go overseas. So I put as number one on my list, Ouagadougou, mm-hmm. and I put as number two on my list, Jamaica. And uh, They're not close I to each other. Up, <laughs> nope. And the Jamaica was, I could commute to Washington to, to uh, see my husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, Actually, so Ouagadougou is, is the capital of Burkina Faso, for people who are not yes. familiar. Yeah. So I was assigned to Jamaica. So that was my first assignment. And uh, my second assignment was Nigeria. And from that moment on, I spent the bulk of my career in Africa. So when did you end up in in Nigeria? Uh, I was in Nigeria from 84 to 86. Okay. It was my second assignment. And then I went from there to the Gambia, uh, where I served from 86 to 89. So so can I ask... Going from like a very large country like uh, Nigeria, where you are still, I presume, like a relatively junior um, mm-hmm. State Department official to a much smaller country like like the Gambia, you said, um, mm-hmm. where you're probably a little more senior. You, did you have like more leeway in terms of like policy and, and getting to set the agenda when you were kind of a relatively junior position in, in the Gambia as opposed to Nigeria? Yeah. You know, it's it's funny you ask that. Uh, when I advise uh, incoming officers now, I encourage them to look at the smaller posts because you do get more responsibility and more exposure when you are in a smaller post because you do everything. So when I was in the Gambia, I was not just the political officer. I was the economics officer. I was the consular officer. I handled military affairs. I handled public affairs. Uh, I handled everything that wasn't done by the ambassador or the uh, management and, and admin people. Uh, so you do get a lot of uh, exposure when you're in a small post like that. There were only six of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was able to meet with the president. Uh, you don't get to meet with the president when you're uh, one of uh, 200 people in, in, in Nigeria. But if you're one of six in the Gambia, you do. And and so this was, I presume, before the the Jame era, right? The the um... it was before the Jame era. President Jawara, who was their uh, uh, their first president uh, from uh, independence, had been there about twenty years. And and I guess what was that? There's like that's kind of an interesting, I think, aspect of, of African history that you have these liberation leaders who um, become. There seems at least to be almost like a tendency where they're sort of greeted as heroes, but then maybe stay on a little too long, and then become kind yeah. of a little corrupt and a little more corrupt, and then are eventually deposed in a coup. Uh, and that sort of seems to be the 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 what happened in, in Gambia at the time. But like, I mean. At the time, like, did you witness that that trend in action? No, we didn't. I think Gambia was an extraordinarily uh, stable place. There, people were beginning to express uh, some uh, disenchantment with uh, President Jawara. 
they felt he had stayed too long. Uh, the uh, corruption uh, was uh, was palpable. Uh, but I didn't get a sense that there were any plans to uh, to overthrow him. I think people still felt that uh, there would be some kind of uh, stable transition. There would be an election or he would die and someone else would come uh, into power. So when uh, Jamey overthrew him in, um, I think, 1994, uh, it came as a, a bit of a surprise. Um, so, and I think even Jame himself was surprised. <laughs> and I think Jame was also surprised last year when he lost an, an election to what is his name Barrow, right, Mr. Barrow? Yes, Adama Barrow. Yes, that, yeah. that was that was my last trip in uh, as Assistant Secretary was to the inauguration of, of Barrow, and I really felt like it was a victory lap because uh, we had all done so much work to help uh, Gambia in this transition. And uh, the members of the international community, and particularly the regional uh, organizations, the neighbors that uh, worked diligently to put pressure on Jame to accept the results of the election, and he finally did. And, and I should say, I, I should plug, I, I did a previous uh, episode of the podcast that looked ex- exclusively at the, the Gambian election, just because I think they're just like such an interesting microcosm into, um, one, like, it sort of things like worked as they should have. Uh, a guy called for an election as he should have. He lost that election despite trying he to rig the results. the results. Yeah, despite trying to rig the results and, and accepted it. There's that famous, he, 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 he um, filmed himself calling uh, his opponent and, and conceding, but then it took him a little longer to concede. And I'm sure you had a lot to do behind the scenes to make sure that he, he left the country. Um, sorry, sorry, go ahead. We all worked hard. Oh, good, good. Well, you did, and congratulations. So, um, we don't have too much time, but I would love to learn uh, about how, what the, what the experience was like to become ambassador of Liberia. Like, how did you know that you were being nominated for this post, and and what was that um, experience? How, how did you come to learn That's that news? Interesting. I I was in a a very uh, interesting position. I was the principal deputy assistant secretary in the Africa Bureau at the time, mm-hmm. and so very involved with. Uh, uh, the you know vetting and reviewing of uh, senior in- individuals to become ambassadors in in Africa, and so at a point uh, the assistant secretary at the time asked where I would like to go, and I told her Gambia, huh. and and she looked at me and she says no I I think you're you're too important to go to Gambia, and so I she says you know why not consider Kenya. And I said, if you really think I'm capable of being ambassador to Kenya, then I want to be ambassador to Liberia. And that's hmm. how I became ambassador to Liberia. Well, what was that connection? Because Kenya is so strategically important. Liberia is so strategically important. You're like, wow, I'll, I'll, if you're going to nominate me for that important post, then I'd rather do the one that I'm more familiar with. No, it wasn't just that I was familiar with it. It was that uh, Liber- Liberia had made history. Uh, they'd gone through 14 years of civil war and elected a the first woman ever to be uh, a president in Africa. And I wanted to be part of that history in terms of helping her to uh, succeed as president and, and uh, also to uh, make sure that our own agenda was and our own interests were uh, 
uh, were pursued. And uh, I thought Liberia gave us the opportunity for that. And so what year did you, did you become ambassador to Liberia? Uh, 08. Oh, eight. Okay, so that was the first year I visited. That was the first time I visited Liberia. Was in oh eight. I've, really? I've been there twice. Yeah, in, in two thousand eight. Um, just uh, briefly, it was with a, a contingent with uh, Bill Clinton. He uh, was visiting some of his. I, I don't know if you're the ambassador there at the time, yeah. but um, shortly. What, what uh, I think it was before I got there in uh, in August, and Don Booth, who was the previous ambassador, mm-hmm. left on July eleventh. Okay. Well, it was sometime over the summer. It was sometime after uh, Hillary Clinton conceded to Barack Obama in the primaries, uh, because after that, the um, Clinton Foundation organized this you know, trip uh, for Bill Clinton. They brought along a, a bunch of journalists, my, myself being one of them, and a lot, also a lot of, I think, Hillary Clinton campaign supporters to visit yeah, a, a number of projects. I wasn't there. I think mm-hmm. it, it happened before I arrived. It was a brief trip, but um, so it was, it was, I was there. It was just a really like a, maybe a day. In Liberia in 2008. Then I spent a few days uh, in Liberia again in 2012. And just the the amount of construction and progress and development in those four years was, was just stunning to me. And it continues. Yeah. No, no. And, and, and it continues to this day. Um, I, I We just have a couple minutes left, but I, I did want to ask you... Um, about your experience being an African-American serving in Africa as a U.S. diplomat. I mean, you, you we spoke earlier about your experiences as um, Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. And at least in my kind of recent memory, there, there seems to be a tradition of having African-Americans serve in that role. Um, like, does, does that, um, do you think, affect the diplomacy at all? Or Better yet, give you any like advantages above uh, your your uh, other diplomats in the region? Like how, like I'm trying to articulate this, but like how does that sort of experience? Would you think differ uh, from say European diplomats serving in 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 Africa? I think uh, you know. I think uh, uh, a person with experience in Africa, regardless of race, can be uh, effective. I also think I could have been equally effective as the Assistant Secretary for Europe mm-hmm. or Assistant Secretary for East uh, East Asia. Uh, and I chose uh, as my career path uh, to focus on Africa. Uh, and we've had some extraordinarily successful uh, white male uh, Assistant Secretaries uh, for uh, the Africa Bureau as well. So I don't know that I was uh, successful because of being an African American. Mm. Uh, I I do think that when I walk in the door, uh, it's for for Africans who I'm meeting with, uh, they like the fact that they're seeing someone who looks like them. Uh, but uh, I think when we really got down to doing business, it was no different for, uh, uh, it would not have been any different. Uh, it's my style that made me different. And, uh, and, uh, and I could have the style being of any race. Um, looking forward. So, so you are now at, at Georgetown, uh, also affiliated with the, the state department. What, what are you doing at Georgetown? Anything we can look forward to you in, in the coming, you know, months and, and weeks? You know, it's interesting right now. I'm working with a, a group of students. I, I started in March, so it was too late in the academic year for, uh, for me to teach. 
Uh, but I'm working now with a group of students to put together a working group on South Sudan and to look at uh, solutions to that conflict. What I've charged them with is uh, looking outside the box and coming up with some ideas of how we can resolve this conflict that uh, seems to have gone out of control. And I think that having uh, young uh, people with new ideas is, is important. So I'm looking forward to working with them as I'm sitting here talking to you. I'm seeing the emails pop in from <laughs> them, and, and they are, are really interested. So that's the big thing that I'm working on right now. I also uh, have committed to giving lectures. So I gave a lecture uh, uh, two weeks ago on the, the challenges facing Africa on the world stage. Uh, I'm giving a lecture tomorrow uh, expanding on that discussion. And uh, I'm uh, working with uh, advising students who are interested in in public service. And I think this is a period where we have to really give uh, a lot of attention to young people so that they can remain interested in, in public service. So I see that as my goal. My My appointment is only for six months. So I'm trying to uh, really pile a lot in so that I can make myself relevant to the university. I'm going to spend the summer doing some writing. Uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it, whether it will be uh, chapters of a, of a future book or uh, articles that I'll, I'll publish at, at some point. And, and then you can start your career as a, as a chef after that, I suppose. <laughs> well, I do something. Uh, people always laugh, but I, I have something I call gumbo diplomacy. Uh, so I do, uh, I'll invite people over and make gumbo, which is a famous Louisiana dish. And it's very, it's a very hands-on dish. And uh, I find that uh, people like to uh, sit around uh, good food and talk. And when I was ambassador, if I wanted people to really enjoy uh, my residence and enjoy the company of, of uh, enjoy my company, I did the cooking myself. Ah. I, I didn't have my staff do the cooking. I, if I had, you know, a hundred people coming for a reception, the staff would do it. But uh, when President Sirleaf won the Nobel Peace Prize, I invited her over for gumbo and I cooked the entire uh, entire meal for every single thing. I, I did have staff serve because I wanted to be able to sit, sit at the table with her and then enjoy her company. But uh, I sometimes would do it without any staff at all. I do it here. I don't have people washing dishes and preparing. I do everything myself. And uh, a meal of 30 is very easy for me to uh, uh, to whip up. Is there something unique? To get unique higher than 30, I... Okay. I have a problem. <laughs> is there something unique about gumbo as a dish that lends itself to this um, kind of diplomacy as opposed to any other dish? Well, for one thing, it's really good. Well, of course. Yeah. Uh, and it's unique uh, because it, it does kind of require a lot of hands. Uh, if if you, you, you don't have to, I, I do it by myself all the time. But just the preparation of it is is so unique. The making of ruse and uh, the uh, using of the Holy Trinity, which is the mainstay of Louisiana cooking. That's the onions, green pepper, and celery. So if I put together a recipe for someone, I just say put in the Holy Trinity. And for me, the Holy Trinity is two parts onion and one part um, one part uh, green pepper and uh, and celery. So if I use two cups of onions, I would use one cup of each of celery and green pepper. 
And so people who know I, uh, who want my recipes know exactly what I mean when I say uh, Holy Trinity. That's amazing. Well, and well, that's in Louisiana cooking. It's not just me. So I didn't make, this is not my own creation. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, it's Louisiana. And people in Louisiana, I, you know, everybody has their own recipe for gumbo. Uh, everybody's gumbo tastes uh, different. So you kind of never have two of the same gumbo, even when I make it myself. It's not the same each time. Well, what did Ellen Johnson Sirleaf uh, uh, say about your gumbo? Did she have any comments? Uh, well, what she told me is that she loved it. I don't know what she said behind my back. <laughs> uh, she may have said, I don't get the, uh, the big deal about this, but her other big thing uh, I'll tell, and, you, and she won't mind me saying, is she loves cornbread. And she uh, would uh, love Jiffy Mix, which is uh, a store brand box mix. And so I said to her, I would never use Jiffy. Jiffy. I make my cornbread from scratch. So for her, I made uh, made cornbread, and I think she probably enjoyed the cornbread as much as she enjoyed uh, the gumbo. That's great. Well, well, Ambassador, thank you so much for for being so open and honest and, and sharing your stories and and struggles and and inspiration. So thank you. Thank you. And now, and now I'm hungry. Forward- I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, come come on over, and I'll make you some gumbo. Oh, absolutely. I'll, I'll be there tonight. <laughs> See you at 7. Okay. Okay. Thank okay. you, Ambassador. Works for me. <laughs> Bye-bye. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to the Ambassador. That was a great conversation. Um As I mentioned at the intro to this episode, I have posted two new episodes, bonus episodes, exclusively for premium subscribers. The first is a 15-minute explainer on the background of the Syria civil war. The second is a show I'm titled Calling Better Know the Kims, uh, who, uh, you know, the family that runs North Korea, who they are, what their relationship to each other is and how their backgrounds, their mythologies have shaped North Korean politics and international relations. It's a good conversation. I recommend you check that out and become a premium member. Support the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We'll see you next time. Bye.